you have your Bible with you, would you take it out please and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. If that sounds familiar, it should because that's where we began this morning as well. Matthew chapter 22 and we're going to begin reading in verse 34. Again, this is in the midst of these discussions or debates Jesus is having with the religious leaders. And in verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I'd like to ask as we begin our lesson tonight, what is the context of this verse that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament? The context of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We know that Jesus quotes this, and he intends for them to understand what he means by this. Uh, but this verse is not just plucked and said, okay, good luck figuring out what that means. It's, it's in a context of other verses that speak to its meaning. And Jesus takes this from a very well-known portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you want to turn back there with me. This is taken from what is known as the Shema, the most important prayer in Judaism, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, contains this prayer. Jewish writings from Jesus' time till today consider this prayer to be the most important part of the prayer service in Judaism, uh, composing a large part of both their morning and evening daily prayers. They would say this at least twice every day. As a Jew, if you knew you were about to die, what you wanted to try and do by tradition was these were the last words that you would say on your deathbed, whispering to someone, saying a prayer to God and others around you. These are the words that you were going to try and say. So verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, they put this everywhere, and specifically, they put verses 4 and 5 all around them. They said it twice a day. They taught it to their children. Their children, there's a long Jewish tradition of teaching children to say this before they went to sleep at night. The first prayer that you learned as a little Jewish boy or girl was this prayer. Um, you know, we have traditions and we have uh, cross stitches, now I lay me down to sleep and all those sorts of things. That was this for them. And so it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus would say, this is the first and great commandment. And that would not come as a surprise at all. And it's no surprise to us as well, is it? Loving God with everything that we are, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the basis for everything else that we do. And we talked about that at great length this morning. But the second commandment, 
while not obscure, certainly, was less important or less centrally, we might say, a part of the Jewish life. And it was more controversial as well in its application. If Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's going to be accepted. And and very few questions are going to be asked about that. But to say, love your neighbor as yourself, well, I can accept that because that's a direct quotation from the law. But what does that mean? How do I apply it? Well, there was lots and lots and lots of writing and disagreement about that second commandment in Judaism. And I would say uh, there's lots of writing and more disagreement among Christians today about that second commandment as well. Why? Well, in part, I would say it's because we're not just talking abstractly about God and our love for God. We're talking much more concretely about a bunch of sinful people. You know who my neighbors are? Sinful people. Because I'm a sinful person. And we all are. Because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We add sinful people to the equation and it complicates things. And so where I really want to focus our time this evening is not on that first command that we talked about this morning, but on the second command and answering the question, what is the context of love your neighbor as yourself? Um, I'm glad that we're all here together this evening, and if you're visiting, we're grateful for your presence. This phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is taken from Leviticus chapter 19. We'll turn there here in just a moment, but before we do, I want to illustrate and show you how this command in the days of Jesus would have been one that was more controversial, at least in terms of its application. Jesus references this scripture on a number of occasions. He references it in Matthew chapter 5, for example. If you want to turn over there in your New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is introducing his kingdom. He says, you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God that I'm beginning? Uh, Here's the kind of person you've got to be. And he corrects a number of, of misunderstanding and misapplication of the old law that that was being taught by the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, he says there in verse 20 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about a number of different things under the law and how this was being mistaught, misapplied. And in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, we see that he addresses this scripture from Leviticus chapter um, 19 and verse 18. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. And uh, this is something that Jesus would do. He'd say, You've heard that it was said this, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. That's what the law said. And hate your enemy. Now, in my translation here in the New King James, my specific Bible, it has these direct quotations from the Old Testament in italics. And in italics, so that you can tell he's quoting from the Old Testament. So the quotation is, you shall love your neighbor. But where had they heard this and hate your enemy? Well, that was the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, you've got to love your neighbor, sure, but you're welcome to hate your enemy all you want to. But I say unto you, Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore, if you do this, you shall be complete or perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. A good question to ask at this point is, well, who were these enemies uh, in terms of how they defined it for the scribes and Pharisees? Check this out. An enemy could be anyone that was a non-Jew. <laughs> so if they weren't a Jew, then you could consider them your enemy and you were more than welcome to hate them. So that'd be the Samaritans, obviously, because they weren't fully Jews. Any Gentile, if we're talking about the Romans or the Greeks or anybody in between, you were welcome under the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, to hate them, well, because they're not your neighbor. They're not your brother. And, and Jesus mis, um, corrects this misunderstanding. He says, no, that is not what the old law taught. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan um, in Luke chapter 10? Why don't you turn over there? Jesus tells this parable in response to Another interaction with a lawyer, another who was testing him. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, we'll not look at the parable tonight, but I want to read what uh, runs up before the parable. And behold, a certain lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses, stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You're an expert in the law of Moses. What do you think? You tell me. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, justify asking this question to begin with, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this parable. He uses a Samaritan as the hero of the story um, to describe what neighborly behavior actually looks like. But the question is, who is my neighbor? Implied by that question is, we can't really know. I mean, this is just some abstract thing out there. God tells us to love our neighbor, but what does that really mean? So we see even just through these two interactions that the first commandment was easier for them to accept than the second. And I think maybe the same thing applies for us. It is easier to accept the command to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength than it is to accept and love your neighbor. Not just love that neighbor, love that neighbor as yourself. In many ways, it's easy to love God because he first loved us. He showed us what love was. He gave us his son. He, he saved us out of sin and he will save us eternally. Of course, of course I can love God. But to love my sinful neighbor, even one who considers himself or herself my enemy, that is difficult. But... The problem is we cannot fulfill the first command to love God with all of our heart if we don't fulfill the second command. And if we turn to 1 John chapter 4, that's exactly what we see. 1 John chapter 4. 
1 John chapter 4. Let's look first in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, loved ones, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, this is very abstract in some ways. Oh, of course, I love God. I've got love in my heart. I'm a person of love. But then we get down to the end of the chapter in verses 20 and 21, and it gets a little tougher. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. John says, you say you love God? You say you, you, say you love God? Look at your attitude to your brother that's actually sitting right there. God is all around us, sure, but we don't see him. Your brother, you see him right there in front of you. You say you love God, but you, you have this attitude toward your brother? He says that's not the way it works. To love God, we must love our brother whom we have seen. And so with that thought, uh, with that background, let's now turn to Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, we first see in verses 1 through 8 of this chapter of the old law, in verses 1 through 8, it talks about the holiness of God, how God is totally holy, and how we have reverence and respect and loyalty to Him, that He should be first in our lives, that it is only Him. Sounds a lot like what we talked about this morning, right? That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because of who He is and what He has done. But then in verses 9 through 18, He talks about loving your neighbor. And every couple of verses has this reminder. Uh, Literally, every two verses, we have this reminder where it says, I am the Lord, your God, or I am Lord. And it's almost as if, let's take eight verses to talk about God being holy and we need to serve God. Now let's talk about, over the course of these next set of verses, let's talk about loving your neighbor. But with each one of these admonitions to love your neighbor in this way, I want to remind you that this is coming from God and your love for your neighbor, for your brother, flows out of the fact that I am the Lord your God, that you love me as you ought to. And so what we see here is that he defines for them, at least in part, what it meant for them to love their neighbors as themselves. And when Jesus says this is the second commandment, it is not just the end of verse 18 that he's referencing, but this whole context of verses 9 through 18. So let's go through these together, beginning in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Uh, who in here has uh, a vineyard? Any vineyards in here? Uh, anybody have uh, the corners of your field? We probably have some people have hay or something, some corners of the field, right? So how does this apply to you and I? Well, in general, I think we're talking about to love your neighbor. You have to be generous to your neighbor. The things that you have in your life, 
they can't all be for you. They can't all be for your own benefit. They can't all be for you to sell it to someone else, to, to further yourself and your own riches. You have to leave a portion of what you have to be generous toward others. And you don't really love your neighbor if you're not generous toward your neighbor. And already we have some definitions of who is included in my neighbor. Who does he talk about here? He talks about the poor and he talks about the stranger. And that term stranger, when it's used in the old law, who's that talking about? It's those non-Jews that the scribes and Pharisees said could be our enemy. That's not what God says. God says you need to be generous toward the poor and you need to be generous toward the stranger. Those non-Jews who have come into the land of Israel, you need to seek to provide for them as well. And God specifically said this in Deuteronomy 10, 19, Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You're not allowed to hate those who are non-Jews. You're supposed to love them. Because you know what it's like to be a stranger in a foreign land. And even this idea of it being okay to hate your enemy, that's not something that's found in the law. In fact, the law contradicts that. Keeping your spot in Leviticus 19, in Exodus chapter 23 and verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, take it for yourself. He's your enemy. Slaughter it on the spot. He's your enemy. No. You shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You're supposed to show love. Actively show help toward those who are strangers and those who are your enemies. So be generous. Be generous with your neighbor. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Let's keep reading. Leviticus chapter 19. Um, and let's pick up our reading in verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by name, my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. And so if we're going to love our neighbor, that means that we have to be honest with our neighbor. Lying to someone is not loving. No matter what you've been told, no matter how many jokes are made about husbands and wives, lying to your neighbor is not loving. And these are the kind of misdefinitions that we run into when we're seeking to be who God has called us to be. And if we stop at, well, just love your neighbor, now, seeing the way that is defined, uh, then we can go down all sorts of incorrect roads. So be honest with your neighbor if you love your neighbor. Okay, let's keep reading. Verses 13 and 14. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Um, that's frustrating, isn't it? You know, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be paid for a job and this person is holding it back, holding back my wages. Uh, and then verse 14, this is cold, isn't it? You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Curse the deaf, why? Because they can't hear you, they can't hear what you say. Put a stumbling block before the blind, 
because they cannot see. This is all petty, little, and vindictive behavior. And so we might summarize it to say, if you love your neighbor, you've got to be kind to your neighbor. Um, being a servant of God is so much more than being nice. But if you're not nice, it's awfully hard to be a servant of God. Kindness must be something that is characterized by us. And we're not ever intentionally petty or vindictive. Um, let's keep reading. Let's go down to verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. So whether they're poor and weak, or whether they're rich and mighty, you're not showing partiality either way. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. And again, we are reminded what? I am the Lord. Because I am the Lord, because I am your God, then you need to make sure that you are fair with your neighbor. Don't be a respecter of persons. Don't show favoritism. Love all fully and equally, at least in this sense. And then we get to verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Um, one of the big problems with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, it was all external, right? Whatever you do inside, that's fine. You can hate your enemy all you want to. But Jesus corrected that and say, no, the heart has always been important to God. And certainly that's what we see here. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we might say, be forgiving with your neighbor. But being forgiving includes seeking the repentance and forgiveness of this one who needs forgiving. That includes, we're told, rebuking this person when he is in the wrong. And there are all sorts of proverbs that, that speak to that very same thing. So that ending there in verse 18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord, I would suggest that that's really just a summation of everything that he has already said in verses 9 through the beginning of verse 18. Loving your neighbor... Loving your neighbor includes much more than just some feeling in your heart. Loving your neighbor includes all of these things. And maybe loving your neighbor, we could certainly say, is more than this, but it certainly is not less than this. And while some of these specific things would be different under our covenant in the way that they are applied, in our time, certainly, the idea of loving our neighbor by being generous and honest and kind and fair and forgiving... Has that changed? Uh, if anything, if anything, our neighbor, our neighbor is owed more from us because of the love that has been shown us in Jesus Christ under this covenant. So if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, this is what it has to look like. It reminds me a lot of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, I want you to turn over there, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and let's read verses 4 through 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As Christians, we're supposed to be known by what? Our love. Specifically, our love for one another, our love for our brethren. By this, all will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another, Jesus said. 
um, as he was about to go to the crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see that the Apostle Paul is going to define what this brotherly love is supposed to look like. Begin reading with me there in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Maybe yours says arrogant. love, Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If you look closely at these verses, you see that there are an equal amount of positive and negative things that are said about love. And not only is there an equal amount, but they also uh, coordinate with one another. There's a positive and a negative for each aspect that is described. But I want us to focus on the negative aspect, and here's the reason why. We go through all of these negative things that are said about love. Not envy, uh, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up or prideful or arrogant, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. I'm just reading off the screen. This is really great right here, isn't it? It is not irritable or easily provoked, keeps no accounts of evil, not resentful, does not rejoice in iniquity. Where did Paul come up with that list? I mean, is, is that all of the things that we could say love isn't? Um, I could add a lot more to that list of things that love isn't. So where did Paul come up with that list? He came up with that list by looking at what was going on in the church in Corinth and saying, these things that you're doing, that's not love. For every single one of these, we can look back in the book of 1 Corinthians and say, This is what they were doing, and Paul says, that's not love. Love does not envy. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, he's explicit. There is envy among you. Love does not parade itself. It doesn't boast or brag. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33, they were parading their spiritual gifts in front of everyone else in the assembly. They were boasting about how my gift is better than your gift. And Paul, in that context, had to limit them and remind them that God is not a God of confusion. Why? Because everybody had a different gift or a lot of different gifts, and they were shouting over one another to use their gifts. How does that not totally miss the point of the Holy Spirit giving you a gift for for edification, for building others up, when you're building yourself up? You're boasting and prideful in that. He says that's not love. Love is not puffed up or prideful or arrogant. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verses 1 and 2, he says, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. They thought they knew better than others. And he says, that kind of attitude, that's not love. Love does not behave rudely. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 21 and 22, um, they were not waiting on one another during the Lord's Supper. And among other things, that's just rude, isn't it? You know your brother is coming to partake of the Lord's Supper. But because he's a slave and he can't get there the same time as you, you say, eh, let's go ahead and eat it. Well, that's just rude, isn't it? They had other issues and problems with the Lord's Supper, but that was one of them. They were just behaving rudely toward one another. Love does not seek its own. Um, Well, let's look back there in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's just read verses 23 and 24 together. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. He says, you're supposed to be seeking the other's well-being. That's what love is, but instead you're seeking your own. Uh, How about this? I love this one. Love is not provoked. The idea is love's not irritable. Love is, if you love somebody, you're just not easily provoked into a a fight about every single little thing. If we think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, he says that there are contentions among you. You're getting into fights. And what were they getting into fights about? I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. You're getting into fights about which one of these proclaimers of the gospel or Christ himself you're following the most? I mean, how silly, how dumb is it to fight about something like that? That's being easily provoked. How about the idea of keeping no accounts of evil? Uh, You're not resentful of others. In 1 Corinthians 6, what were they doing in verses 7 and 8? They were dragging one another to the courts, the courts of the Gentiles, saying, I need to make this right. This, I'm going to sue you to get what I deserve. That's keeping accounts of evil. And he says, love... Love would rather be wronged than to do that. And then this idea, love does not rejoice in in iniquity. Love does not rejoice in sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 and down in verse 6, that's exactly what they were doing with the man who had his father's wife. They were puffed up. They were rejoicing. Look at how tolerant we are. This man is in sin and we're all good with it. You know what Paul does? He does the exact same thing. He does the exact same thing that we found back there in Leviticus chapter 19. It is easy to say, love your neighbor as yourself. It is easy to say, all will know that we are Christ's disciples because we love one another. But when the rubber hits the road, when we get down to brass tacks, this, this is what it's supposed to look like. And loving our brother is more than this. Just like loving our neighbor is more than just what's found in Leviticus chapter 19, but it is not less. It is not less than this. And obviously, I think we all know as Christians, we should love our neighbor. We should love our brother as ourselves. Um, And if we are uh, more clear in our thinking and understanding and application of what that looks like by this lesson, it's been a success. But I think there are some additional applications that we can make. And so I want you to think about these three things beyond just the idea of we need to look at the specific idea of what it means to love our neighbor, to love our brother, to love our enemies, all of those that we're called to love. And the first application is this. All biblical concepts, but especially if we're talking about biblical commands where God says this is what you must do if you want to follow after me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be part of my kingdom. All biblical concepts, but especially biblical commands, have biblical definitions. You know what God doesn't do? He doesn't say, you must do this, good luck. Good luck figuring out what that looks like. Good luck figuring out what that is. If we know that God desires something for us, if it is fundamental to the faith, then the Holy Scriptures will help us in understanding what that actually looks like. 
And that's why, going back to Matthew chapter 22, the law and the prophets are still hanging there because they help to define what those two things mean. And certainly when we look through the epistles, when we look through the book of Acts, when we look through the gospels, we see these important concepts defined. And so I would encourage all of us to seek out how the Bible defines important concepts. We think about faith or love or grace or works or salvation. The Bible is going to define those things for us. If we're willing to seek out what the Bible teaches. Um, I know that there's some discussion among uh, the seniors about how to study, uh, how, to, how to study your Bible and those sorts of things. There are lots of really good ways to study the Bible. Uh, but something that I heard when I was a teenager that really stuck with me, it was in a sermon, um, I think it was Ed Harrell maybe was preaching at the Southside Lectures in Pasadena. I was maybe 14 or 15 years old. And he said, when it comes to any matter of biblical doctrine, what we need to do is find everything the Bible says about that, draw a line under it, add it all up, and whatever we're left with, that's what we need to do. And when it comes to these Bible concepts, may I encourage you, sometimes what we must do is just find everything the Bible has to say about it, draw a line under it, add it all up, and that's it. That's what we need to do. We do that because we have a heart that wants to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we know, and I think it's illustrated well with these two greatest commands. Love God, that's, that's easy at least uh, in terms of the abstract thought of, oh yeah, I want to love God. Love our neighbor, that's harder. And I would suggest that the more practical and difficult the command the more likely we are to misdefine it. Don't misunderstand me. People misdefine what it means to love God, certainly. But when we look through our New Testament and we see the, uh, the issues that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, it was more often over this idea of what it meant to love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? What does love of my neighbor look like? And those sorts of things. Abstract concepts, love God, are easy to accept. Um... And sometimes when it comes to these more practical concepts, we want to define them how we want. Love God? Sure. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, hold, down, hold on now. What are you asking me to do? Well, the Bible is going to tell us. And this is not, I hope it doesn't come across I'm browbeating you with this. Because those two applications really are dependent on this third. Good hearts. Good hearts welcome specific guidance rather than resisting or resenting that guidance. I do not, I do not want to define for myself what it means to love God. I do not want to define for myself what it means to love my neighbor. Because I'm going to stand before God in judgment someday on the basis of how I applied those things. And I love... I love that God gives me specifics about what that looks like because that's what I want to do. I know that God knows better than I how to apply these things. And I want a heart that simply, merely wants to do what God would have me to do. Sometimes I have to lay aside tradition in order to do that. Sometimes I have to lay aside the definitions of the world in order to do that. But if that's what's required, then good. I want to know God's definition as, as precisely 
and as specifically as possible. So here's my question. We talk about the context in which Jesus said these things. Could a first century Jew, could a first century Jew know what God meant by love your neighbor as yourself? I'd like you, now don't respond verbally, but I'd like you to respond like this or like that. Could a first century Jew know what that meant? Absolutely. And so can we. But loving our neighbor or our brother or our enemy so often is not a matter of knowing what that is but doing it because it's hard. It's hard in motivation. It's hard in application. And it's harder than loving God in so many ways. But thankfully, God gives guidance on what that looks like and how to do it. And if we love God... um, Remember this morning, if we love God this much more than anything else, then that means that we must, we must love our brother and our neighbor and our enemy also. Um, And so if you're here this evening, you are either, maybe a combination, you are either my brother or sister in Christ, my neighbor, or hopefully not, my enemy. So I love you. If you're here, if you're here, I love you. But the more important thing is that God loves you. God loves you so much that he gave his son. We just say that, don't we? God loves you so much that he gave his son. He gave his son so that you could have the chance. You could have that chance to return his love by coming to him in humble submission, by putting Christ on in baptism that you might rise to walk in newness of life. And if you're here this evening and you realize that you've not been loving God or loving your neighbor or your brother or your enemy as you should, well, know that there are all these people here who love you as well. And we would want to do anything that we could to help you. All you have to do is come while together we stand and while we sing. Have you